The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. It's 25 years since Northern Ireland's troubles officially came to an end. The Good Friday peace deal, the Belfast Agreement, was the moment nationalists and unionists came together to end decades of bloodshed and bombings. At least in theory. In fact, the deadliest bombings in the history of the troubles, the attack in Omar, took place a few months after the signing. But it was the point the process began that eventually saw hardline unionists and former IRA terrorists work together in a devolved government. And young people now grow up in an environment without bombs and bullets. Now, as the anniversary is marked, the whole system is once again under threat. Northern Ireland hasn't had a first minister or functioning government for more than a year. The main unionist party, the DUP, says it won't return to Stormont until they get the post-Brexit trade deal they want. Meanwhile, MI5 says the risk of attacks by dissident Republicans is now severe and a senior policeman is still in hospital after an attempted assassination. So, with rising threats of violence and a political system in seemingly endless paralysis, is the province heading back to chaos and violence? That's our subject today on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So the thing is, Roger, I mean, everyone points to the Good Friday Agreement as the turning point. But really, would the Good Friday Agreement have happened if Britain was not in the EU? Was actually the whole border issue sort of resolved anyway? I I think that is the absolute key point, because what's changed, what's turned since 2016 is this guarantee for Republicans, people who wanted a united Ireland. De facto, it more or less was, because if Mm. everyone was in the EU, in a way, what did it matter? So that was there. That was crucial. And that changed. And that has been at the core. You know, this whole business about the protocol and now the Windsor framework, that really is the problem. And are all of those searching for something that actually doesn't have an answer? I mean, that's the, that's the question. I mean, well, the moment you throw the EU, uh, the, the sort of like how that had brought everything together, the moment you throw that out of the window, are we looking for a solution that for some reason wasn't talked about in any great detail either before we went? Virtually not. Well, I mean, the, the, you know, the whole idea, oh, it'll be simple, it'll be, you know, but then you get... Uh, a technological solution, well, Boris was saying, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, you've got like, a, border, like a border in the Irish Sea or a border on the island of Ireland. That mm. simply, if you've got two entirely separate trading uh, arrangements either side, then you have to have a border somewhere. It's yeah. a fairly logical thing. So it's going to be compromise. Yeah. And, we, and we we know that this is an environment where compromise is not good. because Not historically, got, no. Mm. And, and this is the key point at the moment because is the DUP which is still the main party the main unionist party was the dominant party generally less so now because in fact it's significant it seems that there are more nationalists than unionists now in Northern Ireland more Catholics than Protestants potentially I mean some of that's disputed um, and how is this going to play out and will the DUP as it sees effectively its hold disappearing will it just get more and more awkward and difficult and potentially could that provoke some sort of return to violence and will the uh, sort of anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, this is now part of the world where they yeah. seem to, you know, they seem to like celebrating. Well, uh, they, pro- they might have Joe Biden coming. West. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I, I might be coming there, but not actually coming to the coronation. Yes. And, and so there's, <laughs> and there's the thing as well. I mean, yeah. Joe Biden, uh, you know, throw him into the mix as well. A man who, uh, you know, reportedly likes the Irish more than the English. Well, he loved his mum and she didn't like the English very much, supposedly. Supposedly. So, uh, yeah, how does that we'll change the dynamic? It well, it's, it's very, you know, it's important to notice the way the Americans deal with this because that makes a big big difference and let's not forget it's also hugely important for the future economics of northern ireland because getting outside investment in there 
is vital and that's difficult if no one knows what's going to happen. Well, talking about investment, look, if you are wondering how to make the most of your money, how to protect your wealth rather than seeing it frittered away in tax or unwise investments, then it's worth giving Wigmore Associates a call. They are a boutique wealth management company based in London, close to Bond Street Tube, where the people who run the company will work directly with you to develop the solution that is going to meet your objectives, whether it's managing your tax efficiency, investing spare cash, you know all about that, you know, loads of money hanging around there wondering what to do with uh, planning for your retirement or sorting out your inheritance arrangements they can do it all for you so give them a call uh, tell them we sent you and uh, or you can visit them at wigmore-associates.co.uk or call them on 0207-224-3400 that's 0207-224-3400 Wigmore Associates who are a proud supporter of Indeed, this podcast they, are, they make this all possible yep. but let's now delve into the subject we're going to talk about today which is Northern Ireland and to help us through all that is Dr. Peter John McLaughlin. He's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Queen's University, Belfast. And he joins us now. So, Peter, I mean, are we faced with an impossible situation here? This, this, this border issue, it seems unresolvable, I mean, without compromise. And it seems like we've got uh, two sides of politics in Northern Ireland where compromise is where it's not their strong point anyway. Let's put it that well, way. They, they can't even form a government at the moment or an administration or even recall Stormont. So I'll be at a point of complete impasse. Uh, I, I don't think so. It would certainly seem there are, there are significant problems right now. Compromise is the essence of politics here, but we've had more difficult problems to deal with before. I mean, we're 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, which was a, in itself a huge compromise, and we had successful working government between two parties, which some thought couldn't compromise the DUP and Sinn Féin for many years. Brexit is the key thing that's complicated this, and, and it has polarised opinions in all sorts of ways. It has made things very difficult. Yes, government has not been working for well over a year now. But uh, as I say, we, we, we've overcome more difficult obstacles. I think that uh, with the right kind of political nous and leadership, that we can still move forward on this. I just don't think it's going to be straightforward in the way it happens. So how revolutionary was the Good Friday Agreement, given that the border issue sort of was resolved because both countries were in the EU? I mean, it, I mean, if we were looking for a Good Friday Agreement now, in the circumstances we've got, it wouldn't happen, probably. It's, it's hard to overstate how important the EU was to the Good Friday Agreement, and yet it's something which we didn't really think about at the time. If you look at the Good Friday Agreement, it's, it's hardly mentioned. It's just taken as an assumption because the two sovereign governments, that is the British and the Irish government, signing into it, no one would have imagined either would leave the EU. So, so a lot was taken for granted in, in trying to making that depoliticising that border, making it a non-border. Because um, I think, as you said, there in terms of resolving the border, the Good Friday Agreement didn't resolve the border. The way I kind of think about it is what it did, and and some would be critical of this. I argue it's it's the only thing that could be done. It kind of kicks the border question into the long grass because what it said really was. You know, that still can be changed if a majority in Northern Ireland decide to change it in the future. So it's kind of leaving it up to future generations with the idea being that, that you could have a peaceful democratic process of, of persuasion, same as you might have a, you know, a democratic debate in Scotland about whether you should have a, uh, an independent Scotland or stay in the union. So we're trying to make it an issue for the future that could only be resolved by peaceful means, which was very important. I mean, previously, people had tried to end the border by violent means or to preserve it by violent means. Um, but what Brexit did is it kind of, as I use that metaphor of kicking the question into the long grass, Brexit really brought it back front and centre, made it centre stage again, because it, it meant there was going to obviously be, be significant differences on either side of the border and make it a more manifest border once again. 
Yeah, because the, the point, I suppose, with the border back in uh, in that time, the late 90s, was that the, the nationalists wanted essentially to feel that they were in the same area as uh, as the Republic, that the, the, that was part of it, the un- one island, the United Ireland. And if you were inside the EU where all the regulations were the same, or increasingly so, that made it a reality anyway. But I suppose that in potentially was what the unionists were concerned about. You could argue that there is some people who would you can question why the DUP and other unionists supported Brexit, because everybody really on this island, north and south. knew. I know it wasn't such a big debate in Great Britain up until the referenda. Everyone knew here that it would create problems over the border. So you could question why did unionists do that? And kind of the way you pose your question there, is there a sense that they wanted to go back on the, to, to the way it was. Yet there, I, I think that that was the case for some units. They didn't like the way things had gone. In the same way that with Brexit generally, some people didn't like the way the UK was changing in terms of immigration and so on. So for some people, this might have been a way to try and turn the clock back. That yes, they didn't like the idea that the border had become less relevant. And you get to that paradox because that's exactly what nationalists, it was easier for nationalists to feel we're still, you know, you know, we are part of an, an Irish space here that it doesn't make a difference. You can easily cross the border. There's no problems visiting your relatives or doing business or whatever it is. So you're saying there's elements of the DUP that voted were supporting Brexit specifically because they wanted to see a hard border back again. It's hard to think that they didn't. Other than that, they, they won't say that openly. And of course, throughout the negotiations, continually the DUP said we want a, a, a an open border, but they also wanted a hard Brexit, and and that's where it's hard mm. to take them at face value. That they're, they're, they're saying, look, we don't want to harden the border, we don't want to create problems, but we want we want a full hard Brexit as well. They, you so know, they vote. Is that a faction? Is that a faction within the DUP, or do you think that's fairly widespread? Because I mean, if that is the case, we are never going to get a, an answer. I mean, no surprise that the, the Windsor Agreement goes nowhere because anything other than the hard border is not going to be satisfactory. It, it's, it's hard. I, I certainly say it's, it's part of the DUP's mentality. You know, whether it's one wing of the DUP or another, I don't think you can even say it. It's, it's the same as the Tory party or anything like this. There's going to be a spectrum of opinion. But I certainly think that generally more hardline unionists and therefore maybe the right of the DUP would have been more uncomfortable the way things have gone over the last 20 years. And it's not just about the border. It's about a whole host of things. It's, it's the complex issues that happen here, like the increase in use of the Irish language. That's been another big debate here. And you know things like that where what they kind of feel has happened with the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement is that Sinn Féin and Republicans are winning by political means. They're creating a united Ireland by kind of hollowing out the Britishness of Northern Ireland. And so for them, the idea of solidifying the border and kind of turning things back and going back to a more familiar British Northern Ireland where they, they didn't see the Irish language, where Sinn Féin weren't in government, where there wasn't an increase in the nationalist population. So it's it's not just about Brexit, it's about the overall process and dem- demographic change, even in a city where I am here, Belfast, that's become far more nationalist now. And visibly mm. so that, you know, it's people are much more confident now from the nationalist community, you know, young kids kids walking around with GEA tops. That's the kind of the Irish version of football. There's Gaelic uh, Athletics Association. Exactly. So it could all all backfire on the DUP then, couldn't it? Because if if, if the whole situation is unresolvable, I mean, there is only one way forward, which is a United Ireland of Ireland, ultimately. Sometimes it is hard to think that other than that they're... you know, working to an agenda which is aiding Republicans. Yes, sometimes we can't have it. And when you say, has it backfired, could it backfire? I think it has backfired. I don't think the DUP, in my own opinion, I don't think the DUP, when they advocated for Brexit during the referendum, 
genuinely believe that it would happen. I think like a lot of people that, you know, it was kind of a protesting. It was an easy way of mobilizing the base. And then when it happened, they were kind of now in an awkward situation where they had to continue down this pathway. And the more they do that, like you say, yes, that in a way, this this increases the argument for very hardline nationalists who say Northern Ireland is not workable. It's not reformable. The Good Friday Agreement tried to reform Northern Ireland. The only solution is the United Ireland. Well, that that's the very interesting thing, isn't it? The, the, the conclusion almost on both sides goes that way. But let's let's break it down slightly with the DUP at the moment. We're now in a position where they have opposed the Windsor framework, and it went through Parliament, went through Parliament very easily, perhaps unsurprisingly. Not met that many Tories uh, voted against it. It is going to happen. Are the do you think now the DUP, which presumably has a set of potential ways forward or not, are they going to go back into some form of government, or what happens next in that regard? Do they make their choice effectively to continue to boycott forever with their own base? Accept that because it means basic things like sorting out hospitals and education can't get done, or are they going to back down? I think they will have to U-turn in some way. I think, and I think they'll they'll do it in their own time. There's a lot of emphasis now on the the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement coming up. Joe Biden visiting, even rumours about whether Prince Charles is going to visit and so on. So there's a whole lot of pressure on what what the DUP don't want to be seen by their hardline elements. Their base is, is jumping, dancing to anyone else's tune. So that I don't think they're going to move immediately. And there's a lot of emphasis on these May local elections and how they could be damaged in those elections. I think they'll want to get those out of the way. I think after that, you will then see a process of trying to manoeuvre a face-saving operation and a way of trying to find their way back into government. I don't think they can go on like this, although it would appease some of their hardline elements, even more moderate sections of their vote base. And crucially, we've seen the rise in support for for moderate alignments like the Alliance Party. It's not just hardliners they're worried about losing votes to. There's, there's moderate, sensible unionists, more younger, pro-EU pro unionists who want to go yeah, it's work. interesting. I've heard, heard a lot of them sort of saying, well, look, you know, it's all very well, but actually the most basic things, like I was mentioning there, the ways that they need to change systems to uh, respond to what the public want in terms of the health service and other things and police, but they can't do any of that because they're just not there. No, you're absolutely right. Yes, such fundamental things as our health service, and we we have real, like everywhere in the United Kingdom, but some very considerable waiting lengths here in Northern Ireland, obviously the backup over COVID and so on. So there's all sorts of pressures there and a myriad problems in terms of various reforms that need to be enacted uh, that, that are not being that this, this is not being done. So I think there just will eventually be too much pressure and eventually the DUP to, to maintain itself as, as, a, as a realistic party because otherwise you will get that kind of splitting between those who just don't accept change and probably more likely to vote for the TUV, that is the much more hard, even more hardline Unionist Party, or to gravitate towards the Alliance. The Alliance has grown an awful lot recently. That's a middle ground centrist party. which attracts, Yeah, that, that, that's a cross-community thing, isn't it? Ex- exactly. So it gets votes from both sides of the community, particularly particularly amongst young people. There is a lot of evidence that younger uh, unionists, like younger nationalists, are, are increasingly voting for the alliance because, in, in a sense, the alliance, that, well, they're not a nationalist party, they're neither nationalists or unionists, so they can still say, well, it's not a, 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 a going to advocate for a united Ireland, but it's going to be able to deliver a sensible compromise over Brexit, get our health service working, reform our teaching, et cetera, et cetera. 
So the DUP has got a bit of adjustment to do, hasn't it? Because, I mean, we only have to go back to 2017, where they held a lot of power, you know, when when we basically had a, a hung parliament in the UK. With them having the whip hand. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so they, they had that they had a lot of influence at that stage. Uh, not so much now. Yeah, course. I agree. And, and arguably, I think that's where they made their greatest mistake. Because as I said before, the idea that I can kind of understand why they advocated for Brexit, thinking it wouldn't happen and that that would rally the base. It was an easy way of, you know, showing that you're very strongly pro-British and, you know, the kind of same kind of sentiments that were seen in Great Britain. But then when it happened and they had to kind of, well, manoeuvre out of this, I would argue, I don't, don't, you know, I I may be understate and there may be some who are ardently pro-Brexit and thought this was a wonderful idea. But, you know, even you think like someone like Arlene Foster, who herself is from Enniskillen, a border town, would have known the huge impact that this would have on businesses in areas like Enniskillen, you know, that trades are very much so across the border of the Republic of Ireland. So that period where they were in office with, with, with the May government, supporting the May government, it's very hard to understand why they took an even more hard line position where they defeated numerous times May's attempt to create a Brexit, which would have been a very soft Brexit, which I can understand arch Brexiteers would have, were saying it wasn't really a Brexit. And I think that's quite right that it, it, it made minimal changes. But what it did it would have avoided any borders because there would have been so so insignificant a change in terms of regulations, et cetera. It would have avoided any of the problems we've seen. So that would have been an opportunity, you know, to be clever there and to say, OK, we're delivering Brexit, but we're maintaining the union. Because that's a, to be fair to May, whatever the criticism, that's what she prioritised. It's not so much Brexit. It was the integrity of the union. And I think she was quite genuine in that. I think that's one thing she really strongly believed in was the union. And when she realised the Irish border was such a problem to that, that it was a threat to the United Kingdom, she decided to prioritise the union. And I'm very surprised that more pragmatic elements of the DUP didn't try to work with her. And it, and it would have avoided a bit of camouflage in the way it was done, but to try and deliver Brexit without undermining the union. Yeah. And they got a lot of money, in theory, out of it as well. But, but Peter, we've, we've spoken a lot about the the unionist side in this. Let, let's let's move on and talk a bit about the nationalists, because they have sat this one out in a way that they've seen been seen, I suppose, by many outside Northern Ireland as, in a way, perhaps the more reasonable, the more uh, pragmatic uh, group. Um, Sinn Féin, in a way, both sides of the border seem to be moving into a greater position of strength. Where do they sit on all this? What, what, what's their prospects for going back on, into Stormont with the DUP, if necessary, and how it all advances? Well, they've certainly articulated that they're very ready to go back into government. And of course, why wouldn't they be? Because they're in a stronger position than ever, because now, and this may add into the problems to the DUP, we've had an election last year where Sinn Féin for the first time became uh, the, the, the main party, for the first time any nationalist party, so even... You know, the moderate SDLP before that was never near to being the main party. Sinn Féin is now the largest party in Northern Ireland, so it would be entitled to the first minister role. I think that's a real, that's an added difficulty for, for, for unions because um, although under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the first minister and the deputy first minister, it's really like a dual premiership. There's no there's no difference whatsoever in terms of their powers. But it's even that, that kind of titular subservience of being deputy to Sinn Féin, that's ideological anathema to the, UUP, to the DUP and to unionists generally. So, so Sinn, getting back to your question, though, Sinn Féin are in a very strong position to now, yes, I to their base look we're we're advancing we're moving things forward we now are going to be the main party in government in northern ireland although it's not quite you know that they're still really equal with the dup 
But what's more of a, of a goal for Sinn Féin and what they're really looking at and, and why you've talked about they're coming across as the more sensible party now, its eye is on government in the Republic of Ireland, where it has also become the main party, the largest in terms of the largest votes. It was kept from office in Dublin by a coalition of, of various opposition, various other parties. So it's not currently in power. But all the opinion polls are suggesting next time round that it will be the largest party and therefore potentially empower North and South and would use that position to drive its its main objective, which is... That, that's be- extraordinary when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> In Fane, when you... On both sides of the border, potentially, they're they set up with the idea of United Ireland and they kind of realise it by moving into power on both sides it's it's extraordinary it's a much more moderate approach now isn't it and and which sort of leads the question if you go back to the you know the height of the troubles it seemed like the whole issue was insurmountable that you had hatred that was being bred from generation to generation and we'd be thinking this is just going to go on forever and yet we had the good friday agreement i suspect we've got a you know a, a lot of young people now who've grown up without having those those values instilled that that you know generational hatred has has gone away and we are closer to having a resolution aren't we and if if the only thing that is stopping that resolution is that we've we've got now this issue with the eu which can be solved because it's just a bit of paper determining really how goods are transferred from one well there's a lot more to it but i mean in effect it's not an intermediate not a totally insurmountable problem. There's just got to be some sort of agreement and moderation. So, um, and have have attitudes moderated a great deal over the last couple of decades? They have very significantly. Yes, it's a much. There are much much greater moderation. And, and even as you've said there, even though the people would focus on Sinn Fein, the DUP being the more extreme parties, they've moderated massively. They've they've changed their position fundamentally. If you go back to the 1980s, Sinn Fein not only you know, supported armed struggle and advocated for the IRA was a quasi-Marxist party at that time. And it's become much, much more moderate because, again, it's looking at the possibility of actually being in power in the South. I, I should now qualify what I said earlier, but that is, is all I'm saying. They are the largest party. It still doesn't mean that they're dominant. They probably still would have to be in a, in a significant alliance with, they have to have some, you know, it's a coalition government. It's much more normal in the Republic of Ireland. So it's not saying that they would be overwhelmingly dominant North or South, but they would be in the lead role then getting back onto the other part of your question there, have things changed? They have very significantly because you've had a whole generation who've grown up with peace and been able to interact and, and cooperate in different ways. But again, it's 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 quite, it's complex. I mean, it's still a divided society. It's, it's still a society that's very different to the Republic of Ireland, to England, to Scotland, to Wales. It's a society that in some ways here in Northern Ireland is much more like uh, post-colonial or an African or Asian divided society where you have very significant divisions because even, for example, again, Belfast, the city I'm living in, um, you know, there's very significant residential segregation. There's areas particularly of North Belfast which are exclusively or almost exclusively Catholic or Protestant, nationalist or unionist. We then have, have an education education system, sorry, um, that well over 90%, closer to 95% of our, our, our school children go to what are effectively segregated schools that is effectively Catholic, Catholic schools or state schools, which are so. Why is that still happening? I mean, that was the case, obviously, in the in the in the British mainland. I grew, I grew up in Liverpool. It was before my, before my time, but I mean, it was you know very much Catholic and Protestant division. I mean, and would be the same also in Glasgow at the same time. Determine which football team you supported, yeah. for example. But I mean, that's all gone. You know, well away now, generations ago. 
Yeah, and, and there are, of course there are still Catholic and other faith schools in, in England and elsewhere in GB. Yeah. Um, but it becomes politicised here. And it's, and it's very, it, it is because it, it's, a, again, a complex conundrum because you would have evidence, survey evidence, suggesting there's huge support for integrated education, right? So this is the sector where you have bring together Catholic and Protestant national students and those who are needed. Don't forget there's a lot more people in Northern Ireland these days who are, you know, from different backgrounds or from mixed marriages, etc. So you have a growth in the integrated education. And, and going back to that point, you have huge survey evidence suggesting support. So quite often you'll get people saying, well, why don't the politicians act on this? Why don't they create more integrated schools? At the end of the day, there is there is growing demand but still, the overwhelming majority of people send their, their children to what are effectively segregated schools. And there's all sorts of complex reasons. It can be, it's not necessarily sectarian. It can be just like, that's a good school. That's the school in the neighbourhood. So it, it relates back to residential segregation as well as because it's the good school at the end of the road. It's where your brother or your your your, your mother went to school. So people, you know, it's no that people in Northern Ireland aren't necessarily act, enacting sectarian uh, politics out in, in their, their choices. They're, they're doing no different to someone in England who chooses or, you know, we have the same kind of things about the politics of, of, of housing, you know, where people buy their houses in England to send their kids to a good school. What ties into this, in my opinion, is it's not, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the segregated education system. What we also have that's different here is, is uh, the grammar school system. So there's actually quite significant socioeconomic division there between the two different groups that you still have some of the best schools in Northern, in, in the United Kingdom and some of the worst as well, because there's far more resources, the better teachers, et cetera, would tend to gravitate towards the grammar schools. So you also have socioeconomic reasons kind of reinforcing the status quo if you understand what i mean it's not just sectarianism and it's i know i would argue it's not really sectarianism it's inertia it's the status quo it's what people are used to it's what for understandable reasons maybe they went to the school as i said it might be where your mother went and and when she was going to school in the 70s or 80s couldn't go anywhere else because it would have been dangerous to wear a certain uniform and cross the city so there's all but, sorts but, but, of Peter, reasons you're, you're talking about you know sectarian not being perhaps a sectarian but i mean on the times i've been relatively recently to Northern Ireland, and you go into parts of Belfast, parts of Derry, and you see, you know, whether it's uh, uh, English flags painted on the side of the uh, of the pavement in, in, in unionist areas and, and the red hand of Ulster and all the rest of it going on, and then you see obviously the trickler in certain areas, a lot of street art, a lot of sense that this is still very much two communities, and we've been talking so far in all this, in a way, about reasonable, in inverted commas, people who are dealing with each other in political terms, and yet we know that there is a potential for violence there. I mean, we, we saw the shooting of a, of a senior policeman very recently. I've certainly heard stories tell about uh, UVF and other groups mm. resurgent. They're certainly involved in gangsterism. I mean, there is the potential for violence in a way well beyond the politics we've been talking about. There is. I mean, there's no denying that. As you noted, you know, a very serious attack on a police officer and wishing well and is currently still in hospital. And as you rightly noted, it might have been reported so much in, in, in GB in, in, in Great Britain. But there were there was some serious incidents last week to do with loyalist paramilitaries parading in parts of Newton Ards outside of Belfast. So there is still flashes of this. And, and, it, and, and then you've got this complex generational thing. It was it was suggested that a lot of these those people involved in the, the loyalist kind of demonstration last week were very young very young men, you know, teenagers and young in their 20s, people who wouldn't have known the troubles, who maybe glorify it, romanticise what happened in the past, but don't really know about this. There's definitely potential for that. But again, like everything, I'm, I'm trying to be balanced and look at both ways and everything I say here. There's nothing like the potential there was. And the reason why I would argue that is there isn't the overwhelming 
uh, economic conditions for this. There isn't the very significant discrimination that was going. There isn't the problem, the cycle of, of, of repression and violence where you had the army on the streets, a very militarized police force. We've we've come on so far in terms of no longer the troops on the streets. We've got a you know a, one of the most accountable police forces in the world in certain regards because it was so thoroughly reformed and you know has to be so careful in everything it does. So we have so many things that are that are much improved. It never takes away from the conditions where you're going to have, you know, young people who are, who this is it's glamour. And you could argue, I think one of you mentioned there about criminality. It's not that different in some regards to what happens in in Manchester or Glasgow regards drugs, gangs, and all these kind of LA or wherever it is. You know that this kind of thing gets politicised wrapped up in this this past to give it legitimacy to claim that this is for your mm. queen and country or your identity or your community when in fact this is just you know uh, gangs and and let's be honest we're talking here about men aren't we there's a gender politics here as well we're talking about yeah. young yeah. disenfranchised men and we see them in in all sorts of major cities but with access to weapons as well, this is another thing. The weapons, there was a big thing at the end, as you know, after the Good Friday Agreement of, of disarmament over years, of supervised disarmament. Yet I've certainly heard stories that there are big caches of weapons out there, and that's what people well, like. That, that is a problem, isn't the it? But the, but the fundamental issue is the availability of those weapons. And as you say, young people who are searching for meaning. Yeah. I mean, that's normally, you know, people who t- take to drugs or, or gangs, it's because they don't have a meaning in life. And maybe, you know, there's a, a reason that's given to them, a meaning. They've mm. got a, a cause to fight for, whether they believe it or not, or if they had, you know, had a, a decent nine to five job uh, and a happy family life, that meaning would uh, w- would change somewhat. So, I mean, that, that's a fundamental issue wherever you go in the Yeah, world. they have motive and means, essentially, is what we're saying, to, mm. to do the kind of things that could bring it all back. I, 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 and one thing I would I would just qualify on what you said there is, is talking about the weapons. I, again, I, I would make a, a strong comparison to what was in the past. That, that, yes, we all know. Again, I would say Northern Ireland's not 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 unique in this. That it's it is easy, unfortunately, easy to get hold of weapons, and it's just the same in Dublin or Manchester. But I don't think there's anything like the caches of weapons that there were available in the in the, at the height of the troubles, particularly on the nationalist side. Because don't forget. In the, in the 1970s and 80s, not only with support from Irish America, but then later on, even more significantly from Libya, the, the, the IRA was hugely armed and had very some very sophisticated weaponry. And Semtex was the most obviously dangerous uh, explosive that it was able to use. I mean, those kind of all those weapons were decommissioned. Doesn't mean there aren't weapons in Northern Ireland, but we're not talking on the same level. I agree with everything you've said about the more broader problems about young men, particularly and the potential there. But I, I think we also need to be careful not to. I'm still trying to stress the optimistic side of this. I don't think there are the same conditions for the outright violence, which doesn't mean that we should be complacent either. It's a balancing act. So what happens next week then? So it's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Is that a, a, a moment of, uh, of celebration or do we look at it and go, well, it was good while it lasted? I think we should be celebrating it personally. Yes, I think there's lots of reasons why we could be questioning this and saying, look, the government, the centrepiece of the Good Friday Agreement, that is power sharing, is not working. Uh, but the very fact that you have, um, you know, the president of the USA, you know, the still most pl- important political office in the world coming to visit and the idea that, OK, 25 years on and people might say we haven't come very far. But then think about it this way. Think about the 25 years before that. Think about the loss of life that where never, nearly everybody in Northern Ireland in some way their family was touched by the troubles, whether it was a, a death, um, a, a mutilation through a bombing or someone being wrongfully imprisoned or spending their life in prison, whatever it is. 
then think about the attacks in, in Great Britain, the, the huge bombing attacks that were in Birmingham, Manchester, London. Think about the attacks in the Republic of Ireland, Dublin and Mona, and some of the worst bombings as well. People overlooked that. So think about what we've come from the 25 years before that. And yes, things are not perfect here, but I would still stress the optimism of saying that we've had something much closer to a working, stable political settlement with a semblance of democracy for a good... Again, I stress this point that pre-Brexit, Brexit has been a game changer. It's, it's a massive geopolitical shift. Up until that, we had an earlier decade of successful governance between Sinn Féin and the DUP. Who would have imagined that? Mm. I don't think... Wait, that, you you uh, just you call know, it a semblance of democracy. or sem- Is that because... In a way, the fact that it is nailed into these two communities in quite a sort of stiff arrangement, constitutional arrangement, in fact, doesn't allow for much operating outside that dichotomy. Well, there is that. And, and yes, and I'll come back to that. I think the reason I use that word as well, it's maybe not a word I would use, but I, I'm acknowledging the fact that people would question democracy because right now our government isn't working. So they say, well, how, how democratic is that? Because you could argue there's a de- democratic deficit right now. So there's that reason why some people would question. I still think that it is, it is the most democratic system you can have working. But then there's another important point you've made there is that, yes, the, the, the nature of the Good Friday Agreement, the power sharing system means that it kind of, some would argue, it locks in the two main parties. And again, I think you need to be careful the way you talk about this because that's what most people would say is, is you have to have Sinn Féin, the DUP power share and the two main nationalist unionist parties. And even my students, when I'm teaching them, regularly say this, oh, there'll be no change because it will always be the top, you know, top uh, unionist, the top nationalist party. And I say, well, what about if everybody voted for the Greens? What if everyone voted for the Alliance? How would that change government? Because in fact, you have a system whereby, unlike Westminster, you could argue that's not at all democratic. It's a winner-takes-all system where whoever gets the most votes in the most seats has absolute power in the executive. Whereas here in Northern Ireland, as in other systems, it's a bit more complex where you try to include all sorts of opinion. And if the Greens or the Alliance were to get, for, for example, now, if, if the government gets working again, because the Alliance vote has gone up, it will have more seats in the government. It will have more seats in the executive. It will have more say. And that could continue if it, if it continues to show that it's a much more successful, sensible party, is it would get more support. You can gradually change this. Now, there are protections and ways in which nationalist unions have more of a say and still would have the, the first and deputy first positions as a deputy first minister. But what I'm trying to say there is the Good Friday Agreement does allow for evolution. And I, I also all constantly argue against every negative interpretation because it's that which feeds into the stasis. If people don't vote, if they don't vote for different parties, you won't get change. But I would argue that the Good Friday Agreement allows for far greater change than something like the Westminster system. Of so government. you could have a Green and, say, Alliance Party first and Deputy First Minister. Is that possible? No, not not on that condition. And I did make that point because that's one of the, one of the checks and veto is is that you have a complex system where the first and deputy first ministers still have to be voted for by the nationalist unionist blocks in the assembly. You, I, I believe under a te- technicality, you could have one of them could be different, but you would need to have, ex- you need, they, there's still ways in which the nationalist and unionist blocks in the assembly still have more of a say. But you certainly could have a situation where you have a majority of ministers would be overwhelmingly green or alliance if more people voted for them, because that's surely what you aspire towards is a situation where people don't vote nationalist unionists further down the line. And that then the other point I'd make about that, and that's what the alliance are arguing for now, is as their vote goes increases, then surely that gives a mandate for change where you could get rid of some of the the, the provisions that insist you must have a deputy first and first mm. minister as nationalist units. So again, I'm stressing the more optimistic point of view here because I think you need to and say we can be critical about the Good Friday Agreement, and then we can also say 
it survived 25 years. No other agreement. The last time we had a power sharing agreement in Northern Ireland was in 1974, in the height of the Troubles, right? So the Sunningdale Agreement was very like the Good Friday Agreement. It lasted six months and it was brought down. Now, think about the difference of this is whatever the problems of the Good Friday Agreement, that it's transformed Northern Ireland. Yes, it hasn't got rid of sectarianism or, or integrated the two communities, but it's got rid of the paramilitary weapons. It's reformed policing. It's brought Sinn Féin, the DUP, into power and they share power for 10 years together. It's brought all sorts of changes to our economy and to our equality legislation beyond nationalist units in terms of disability and gender and all sorts of other issues. You have to stress the positives if you're going to keep moving forward, well, in my it, opinion. It would be crazy, wouldn't it, if it all fell apart because of a bit of paper that is trying to argue the case about how goods coming into the country are handled, whether they are uh, bound for Europe or whether they're bound for domestic use and sort of trying to work out a, a mechanism. It sounds doable, doesn't it? Uh, and if, if politics gets in the way of that, happening then that is crazy but what about the um, what about the joe biden factor then i mean we he is coming over for the for, for the anniversary of the good friday agreement we believe we also believe he's not going to be going to the king's coronation uh, which <laughs> is perhaps sending the wrong message well, for, perhaps the right message as far as the irish are concerned well well maybe although you know if, you, if everyone's trying to play the middle ground here it would mm. be quite nice if he did both wouldn't it but he's got this strong irish heritage there's this big fear in the in the uk that uh, britain's not going to get the trade deal that it wants with the united United States, uh, if uh, if he's not happy about you know progress in, in in Northern Ireland, but there again, I wonder how close we, we were to having that agreement yeah. anyway. I mean, uh, Sunak and Biden met at the uh, the G20 in Bali, and apparently they didn't even talk about it once there. Well, so, yeah, yeah. so so it's a way off. But I mean, is what, what is the Biden influence in all of this? Do you think? I, I think it is very important, although I agree with your point, it sounds like the trade deal is a long way off. And I think that's more to do with US politics and a kind of move away from the kind of Clinton era of globalisation. But I still think the US role is very important. It was very important to create in the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, if you think about Clinton's very hands-on role, the fact that you had George Mitchell, a, a very trusted confidant, was sent over by, by Clinton to be the, the, the chair of the talks. And, and this, you know, all the accolades due to this man are, are well-deserved. Remember, this is a, a man who, who at a time where the parties here in Northern Ireland, some of them wouldn't speak to each other. So the, U, the U, UUP was the main unionist party at that time, wouldn't speak to Sinn Féin. So these parties negotiated an agreement exclusively through the chair. He had to you know, listen to one and then listen to the other, and they wouldn't speak to each other directly. So the patience of this man to get this agreement and the support of, of the Clinton administration was absolutely vital in this. And that's what's being recognised, I think, in the next week or so with Biden coming along, is it's, 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 it's recognised, obviously, a particularly a democratic government, but it's Irish America's role in the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement, which was very, very important because in a way it kind of balanced things out for nationalists and particularly for Republicans. Republicans were very distrustful, as, as of course the British government was distrustful of the Republican movement. Republicans were very, very distrustful of the British because of British and Irish history. And America was kind of offered itself as a, a kind of a, a neutral guarantor. And that's what it's still doing today is making sure what is signed up to in the Good Friday Agreement is honoured. And it's kind of kept that, really. And so it helped give Republicans the confidence to go down a political route, 
which has been kind of vindicated, you could argue now. And so in a way, it's understand people can be cynical about Irish America and about Biden coming and, you know, his Irish heritage and so on. But it does mean an awful lot to, to people of Irish heritage in the US to feel that they played a part in bringing about a peaceful settlement and not just, you know, again, it can be stereotyped about, you know, wanting a United Ireland. And I'm sure lots of people in Irish America would like to see that. But what they've actually really stood be behind is a fair settlement. So they've helped nationalists get a better say, but they've also not trying to foist a United Ireland on, on the unionist community. What the, the US played a very balanced role, and I think you, you do have to recognise that. We'll see what he ends up saying about it and, and how it goes. But Peter, thank you very much indeed for that. A fascinating uh, look at what's, well, certainly still a very complex situation. But an optimistic tone, I well, guess. Well, I think so. That. I so, think, yeah, so in that's it, what I'm it, judging. It would be too soon to uh, subdivide Stormont into apartments uh, right now, wouldn't it? Like, <laughs> very attractive how, place, though. How quickly do you think uh, before power can be resumed? Final question. I, I'm not a gambling man, but I, as I said, I think the key marker is this May election to get that out of the way. And then I, I, I don't know after that. I think it will still take a few months. And I think it's really a case of um, kind of managing the optics, really, isn't it? And we all know that's how important that is in any, politi in any politics, but particularly here in Northern Ireland, where it's you, you cannot be seen to be giving in or giving way or compromising when in fact that's really what's going on. So you need effective political leadership, really. So it's that's what's got to happen now is, is a, finding a way of trying to manage uh, what is effectively a pretty much. I mean, don't, let's not let's not underside this as well. There have been significant changes in the in the protocol, and that Sunak deal does seem to have. We, we've yet to see it really in operation, but you know, depending on how that works, that might make it easier. And, and, and maybe sometime after summer that you might get chance. But I, I, sort of I remain optimistic, very much so. Well, maybe Joe can say a few words we'll in the ear and hope get it sorted <laughs> out. Look, and hope, hopefully next week is a week of celebration yeah. and uh, we move forward from here. Great talking, Peter. And Thanks, Peter. And yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, there we are. Yes, Northern Ireland. And uh, we shall <laughs> see. <laughs> well, I mean, that's all you can ever say, isn't it? But, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope. Let's hope it's, it, it, you know, we do we yeah. do move forwards on all of that because it has seemed like an insurmountable problem. But the more the more you think about it, you know, there's, the devil's always in the detail and you're just going to have people who are prepared to actually get into the detail and, and, and look at the bigger picture at the same time and go, well, we can we can afford to live with this. We can afford to live with the fact that but, maybe if you're travelling from the mainland to, yeah. uh, to, to Northern Ireland, you need to carry a passport well, with you. But actually, guess what you need to anyway from what? I understand if you were uh, even what you know even when we were all part in that and you mentioned the EU family yeah, that's mm. very interesting because obviously Sunak and, you know, love him or hate him is a details man in a way that the previous incumbents yeah. were yeah. not uh, and that actually brings us nicely on to what we're going to be talking about next because his detail and that's very much his signature gets into it gets it sorted is obviously focused on the boats coming mm. over and they don't mm. want the boats coming over the channel but the prospects are that what the government's proposing at the moment might very well, by their own admission, uh, go against international law. So this set us to thinking, is there actually a policy that would be humane, legal, actually get political support, practicable, would actually work? Is there anything of that kind that actually is out there in terms of dealing with, with well, migration? here comes the rub. Uh, it's got to be something that the whole of the EU works on together, including us. But we're know? not part of the EU. But I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, we need to work with them. I mean, it's the, we. You still have. You know, yeah. when when we left the EU, the geography of Europe stayed the same, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got to acknowledge that geography, and we've got to play with the EU on trying to find a solution that yeah. works for but, works but for fitting, everybody. Fitting into those 
in those characteristics that it doesn't break international law, doesn't isn't horrible to people, uh, and at the same time addresses what we kind of admit is a problem. Let's see if we can find a solution to that. We're going to get someone to talk and give us a sense of, is there a plan that would actually tick all those boxes? <laughs> That's what we're going to come on to next wow. week. Wow. And if we can solve that, then what do we do next? <laughs> uh, we solve world hunger, world peace, and climate change. It's yeah, worth yeah. a try. We'll give it a shot. We'll give it our best shot. That's next week on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. We'll see you next week. The Y Curve.